Uh, all right, good to be with you guys. Welcome. If you snuck in a little bit late, I saw some folks who came in a little bit late, like they were coming from Starbucks, and they saw me, and they were like, oh, no, we're busted. And I was like, yeah, we took roll, and we knew that you weren't here. And so you're red-handed. You have evidence of Starbucks in your hands. So. And what an insult to our coffee ministry. No, just kidding. Uh, just kidding. I'm glad you guys are here. Whether you were dragged here, whether you were shoved, um, coerced, tricked, whatever it is, however you ended up here, I'm really glad that you're here. Even if you're not super excited about being, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, this is a place we talk about a lot that's a, um, a place full of people who are trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus and how to love other people. We are convinced that not a single person in this room does that perfectly. Not a single person in this room has all the answers. But we are people who are um, seriously committed to, uh, to figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus. And that's what we're about. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, we've been, um, we've been looking at this series called Christian. And uh, if you've been with us, we've been saying since, since Easter, in fact, I, I met a lot of you um, as I've just kind of walked around and meet people before the service starts. A lot of you have said, I didn't start coming to church until this Christian series. I came at Easter and then I thought I'd check it out because it sounded like you were going to say some stuff that might, you know, might, you know, kind of confirm what I already believed about Christians. And that's been true. And so thank you for that. But what we've been saying through the whole series is the word Christian is only used three times in the Bible. It's not a word that the Christians chose for themselves. They weren't looking for a team name and a special handshake or whatever, and they thought, oh, how about Christians? Yeah, you know, there's none of that. Uh, Jesus didn't refer to his followers as Christians. He invited people to follow him, and then he called them disciples, which is kind of like probably the the best equivalent for the word disciple. It isn't student, although he might have learned it that way. It's more like the word apprentice. That people who would be around Jesus, people who would follow him, would choose to follow him, would become people, this is the role of an apprentice, to become like the master. And so we've been talking about that over the past uh, a couple of weeks. And this is the second to last week in that series. Um, but, uh, you know, we said also that people who belong to Jesus, as Jesus described uh, to his own disciples, how people ought to be known who belong to him. He said the way you're going to be known and the way you ought to sort of behave or act or be, have the reputation is not by the propositions of theology that you believe, but rather by your love for each other and your love for the outsiders. And so we talked a lot about that. It's been a very, very good series. Lots of questions are coming up. People um, wrestling with some great things. been a total challenge to me as well as someone who started going to church when I was about 12 years old. So everything that's been kind of coming up has been something I've been wrestling with as well. And so hopefully you're, you're kind of engaged in it as well. But we're going we're gonna to keep going in this series. Before we do that, let's, let's pray and then we'll, um, we'll get right into it. Father, we are grateful that you meet us here. That of everything else that's going on in the the world of church, in the world of Christianity, it is ultimately, Father, our intention to follow and to hear from you. And we believe that you have the power to rescue us from ourselves, that you have the power to rescue us from our own captivity. Jesus, we're people, as I was talking last night with a guy who have family members who are ill, who are stuck with this sense that there is, uh, the world is overwhelming. God, we need you. For some of us, Father, we have um, a sense, at least for the most part, that our lives are going pretty well this week, perhaps. Father, would you help us to seek you, not only in the times where we're really needy, but where we're feeling like we don't need you. Jesus, as we learn what it means, just further explanation, further conversation and curiosity about what it means to follow you. Today, Jesus, would you speak to us, even those of us who aren't sure about who you are, those that we've brought, our friends, neighbors, whoever it might be, would you speak to us right now 
in the quiet stillness of this moment, that in whatever way that you might speak to us, Father, it would be made known to us in the stillness of our own hearts. So we just give you a moment that you might speak to us in words beyond words. Jesus, teach us, challenge us. Give us a moment to laugh, to relax, to breathe, to consider your great love for us. In your name, Father. Amen. Um, very good to be with you. Like I said before, I'm really excited about this series. Um, what I want to do is this. If you brought a Bible, we're going to be in basically in two places. It'll be John chapter 1 and Matthew 23 if you want to put a finger there, whatever you want to do. If you grabbed a Bible on your way in, great. If you want to follow along on your iPad, iPhone, whatever it is, or you want to follow along on the screen, great. We also have an outline in your bulletin. You can check that out as well. Um, let me ask you, I need a little feedback here. Uh, if I was to ask you, I know it's a little early probably to ask this question, but for some of you, it'll be, it'll be no problem. I, 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 didn't re- I don't have an answer for this, really, but I asked my wife. She answered right away. So here's the question. If I was to ask you, what is the ultimate dessert? Think about it for a second. Don't yell it out. Don't. Think about it for a moment. I want you to tell me what the ultimate dessert is. Go. What are they? <laughs> Evidently, there's a race over here. Okay, someone said mud pie over here. Real quick, you can raise your hand so I can call on you. So, mud pie, what else? Cupcake. Any cupcake? Who said cupcake? Cu- Any cupcake? It doesn't matter. P- oh, pizookies. Oh, and uh, a roar of applause swept over the crowd. Wow, everybody just paused for a moment and thought, I know where we're going for lunch today. Right now. Yeah, go, what? The claim jumper mother load. It's a piece of cake as big as this whole music stand right here. Yes. Good. What else? Any cheesecake? No. 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 How dare you? Yeah, watch. What, what one? White chocolate chip rosemary cheesecake. Oh, raspberry. I think it's a rosemary. I'm like, that is so bizarre. <laughs> That's a very avant-garde dessert. We have rosemary, ketchup, it's a little something else, hot sauce. Good. What else? Creme brulee. Any creme brulee? Where, where are you? We. Oui. Ah, we. Oui. That's the only thing I know how to say in French as well. Uh, but it doesn't matter where it comes from. It could be part of a hungry man dinner. Just like there's a little section of Salisbury steak and a, just a little triangle of goop. Yeah, they call it. Yeah. What else? Oh, there's a, there's a rivalry going on over there. Some, what else? What? Cherry's Jubilee. Fire. Fire. They had hand motions for that one. It wasn't just it was just Cherry's Jubilee. It was fire. Can you actually burn your face? Is it actually really on fire? I've never Yeah. What, you know, you don't want a dessert unless it can burn your face. Yeah, good. Someone else said something over there. Chocolate chip cookies. Okay, really quick question. Everybody in the room, serious question. How many of you would rather eat cookie dough than cookies? Just show your hands, show your hands. Ooh, someone said ooh. Okay, how many of you are like, it's got to be cooked. At least you got to at least warm the dough up a little bit. Okay. Last night, everybody was like, I mean, it was like unanimous that it was like definitely a cookie dough crowd. How many of you guys like them almost burnt? Like they got to be crunchy. Really? Well, you are a weird person. Okay, it's just you and some rosemary cheesecake. <laughs> My wife says, I asked her and she said, she answered right away. She goes, oh, I remember when I was pregnant. 
And I said, I remember that too. No, she said, I, she said, I remember when I was pregnant. And she said, I remember we would, we would go to Ruby's. And they had, it was like their special limited edition shake. And it was a, uh, it was a chocolate ice cream shake with crushed Oreos, tiny chocolate chips, and chocolate sauce. And then she asked them, can you, can you amp up the chocolate from there a little bit more? They're like, really? Okay. You know, so she, I mean, she had this, it was basically, it looked, it was like this, it was just 100% black. I mean, it was like, she just, oh, she loved this thing. I, I don't really have a favorite dessert. I like some desserts, but I'm not really a dessert person. More than, more than anything else, I probably would rather have more of what I had than while everybody else is eating dessert. Like, I'm on seconds or whatever. I just had a second ago. So, I know your people are like, that's insane. That's the only reason you go to a restaurant is so that they serve you dessert ultimately at some point. But, Here's the phrase that's often used in the Bible to describe the ultimate. Something that is what we would call the quintessence. The ultimate, that's sort of the expression of all that something could be is the word fullness. So when you have this, this terminology, the word fullness, it is to say this is as much of whatever it could be that could be. So you can look on your outline. This is what it says in Colossians 2. It said, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In other words... All that who God is, is embodied in Jesus. Or all of the fullness of God, the ultimate expression of who God is, is in the body of Jesus, the man, Jesus. The fullness of the deity. Now the problem is this. That, it, let's just suppose, some of you again are investigating about whether or not Jesus actually is who he says he is, all of that kind of stuff, I realize that. Just for a moment, suppose that that statement is true. Whether or not you believe it, just for, the, just for a thought experiment. Let's suppose that it's true. The problem is this. The notion of what the deity is like, what God is like, is a troubling idea. Because for some of us, we have, and this is largely responsible for Christians creating this sort of deal, by the way. But for a lot of us, we have an impression about who God is, our God image, that's like a, a high school principal. Who I, I remember we had, a, well, more like a dean of students. We had a dean of students who had like a walkie-talkie and just walked around and just loved like busting people for stuff. And I went to a, a high school where you had to tuck in your shirt, you know. And so you could just walk around, just detention right here with me. And just was like working the pistol, you know. Just shoot, you right here, come here, right here. Write your name down and call a walkie-talkie over. And it was like, really? This is, this is how kind of we impress, a lot of us have the impression. This is how God's like, just walking around, looking at us, shirts untucked, come talk to me later. You, right there, right here, I see you, right there. I, know, I even know what you're thinking, get over here, don't even think that about it. Like, that's how you have an impression about God. Some of us have an impression about God that we got that he's kind of like a CEO. That he's kind of orchestrating and running stuff, but he's pretty unapproachable. He's got 114 secretaries they have to get through each one before you can talk to him, before you can fit on his calendar. He'll have his people contact your people, one of those kind of things, but you're probably not important enough for him to talk to you. Some of us grew up with that God image. Others of us grew up with a God image where Jesus is kind of like a buddy. Like he's kind of like he's right there with us, hanging out with us. Hey, man, what's up? Hey, how are you? High five, special handshake, whatever. Like that we have with Jesus. But he's not really all that powerful. That if we need, he could kind of be there with us, but he's not really powerful. Some of us have an impression of Jesus like he's kind of like a mall cop. He's just kind of a little over-exaggerated sense. Or, you know, God is, we kind of have this impression that God's kind of got this like, He's got one of those, what are they called, segways? And he's just zipping around, just trying to tell people. He's got kind of on a power trip, telling people stuff, directing people, kind of being only marginally helpful. Restrooms are over there. They're five stores down to the left. I mean, it's just like, there's not really that much to him. And so the impression about God, who God is, when we see this phrase, for in him, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, we have a problem with that because the question of who God is is sort of 
an issue for us. Christians don't always make it clear what God is like. Like we said throughout the series, is that you can make Christian mean just about anything because there's no real definition in the Bible. But Christians have made it a little bit unclear. In fact, a lot of times what you have is Christians sort of form God's image in such a way that it masks our own insecurities or our fears or it covers those things up or it sort of fits our needs. But I want us today to take another look at the way in which Jesus is described. Because I think it actually opens the door for a lot of people to go, if that's who Jesus really is, despite what the Christians might have shown me, if that's who Jesus really is, then I would choose him. I think if that's who God is, I want that. If we who are people who would call ourselves Christians, who belong to Jesus, if we got a handle on this, the picture of who God is would become so much more compelling if we really, really embrace this stuff we're going to talk about today. So take a look what it says in John chapter 1, verse 14. This is, the, this is one of the verses you read at Christmas, actually. And here's what it says. The Word, meaning God, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, is the first word of full, full of grace and truth. Uh, Doug mentioned this last week. If you were with, he said, this basically said this way. It, it, Jesus is the answer to the question, what is God like? And the way in which God is known here in Jesus is first that he made his dwelling among us. Uh, the word dwelling there is, it's, it's the same as to have pitched a tent. This is what that means. That, you know, God in Jesus pitched his own tent in the camp of his own people, us. Now, um, the, the sort of more awesome word for that, the, this is sort of a, a, a ver, like a verb form of a noun that you see in the Bible. Since it was the fancy word for a tent is the word tabernacle. And so... Jesus, God in Jesus, tabernacled among his people. And here's what this means. The tabernacling presence of God, the one who would make his tent among his people, we first see this right after God's people are freed from captivity in Egypt. The the Israelites are freed from captivity and they're walking around in the desert and God's presence is made known and he sets up a tent of meeting for them to hang out together. Here's what it says in Exodus 40, just to give you a sense of what this looks like. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The word glory right there, by the way, you might have heard of this word before. It's the word Shekinah in Hebrew, or Shekinah, you've heard of the word Shekinah glory. That's what that is. This is the radiant presence of God among his people, the glory of God among his people, and that who made a tent among them. And what's being said here, John's writing, that Jesus is the tabernacling, glorious presence of God among his people. That's who Jesus is. He made his home among his people. Let me, um, you know, each night I I have three kids. My, I have two boys. One is uh, f- almost five, and the other one is nine. And I have a daughter who's seven. So they're in two different rooms. My boys share a room, and then my daughter has her own room. And so my wife and I, you know, we each put one room to bed each night, and we swap the next night and kind of tuck everybody in and do all this stuff. Well, for my daughter, she, she likes to do a couple things. She likes, she, she really does like when we memorize, like, scripture and stuff. She's actually pretty good at it. She's pretty sharp. She likes to do that stuff. She also likes to look things up on Google right before we go to bed. Dad, who's the tallest person in the world? You know, I look it up, and it's a guy from Turkey. He's, I don't know, he's nearly eight feet tall. 
okay, good night, I love you, Dad. You know, and then she goes to sleep. Uh, my, um, my oldest will process his entire day the moment his head hits the pillow. Super, like, whatever emotion he's feeling, it's amplified by 100. Happy, joy, hyper, sad, whatever, speculative, everything. He's just like, Dad, I was just wondering. One time when he was really little, he, I'm not kidding, he might have been maybe five. He had heard this term somewhere, and he goes, Dad, what does the fear of the Lord mean? Uh, go to sleep, son. Do you want to know the tallest man in the world? You know, like, I mean, this is like my, this is when he was, so he every day processes, you know, my friend Eric, he said this to me, and these guys did this to me, and I was wondering if, I, you know, you know who else is fast at our school? I'm fast, but these other guys are fast. And those are, I could, it's like, okay, buddy, go to sleep. You need to calm down, so I'll go to bed. My four-year-old, he, all he wants is me to just lay next to him for a minute or two, tuck him in, give him a little kiss. And he's, he's the funniest of any kid you've ever met in your life. And so, Typical youngest child, right? So I have my two boys are, you know, chattering at night. It's like, okay, boys. Hey, guys. 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 We got, we got to go to sleep now. That's, that's enough. It's quiet. You're quiet. And you're quiet. Quiet. It's totally dark. I don't know why I would even point. Because it's totally dark in the room. But then I lay down next to my, and my, my four-year-old Scotty goes, will you, Dad, will you, will you lay in my bed? Okay, buddy. So I lay down next to him. We're quiet now, right, guys? Okay, we're quiet. And everything's totally, the, finally, we, we get this moment of, like, stillness. Which, by the way, my, my four-year-old will be the most awesome kid, like, to have in a camp, like, at a camp cabin, like, when he's, like, in junior high. By the way, our junior high ministry <laughs> on Friday night did a, the most insane thing in the world. Some of you have junior high kids. They did an overnighter. And it, I don't mean, like, they went to camp and then they had a cabin and slept. It was, like, a nonstop just barrage of screaming and candy and sugar and more screaming from, like, I don't know, 7 to 7 in the morning. And they did, you know, broom ball and stuff. And I just want to let you know, I, I was looking at the schedule <laughs> on, the, on our little whiteboard in the office. And I'm like, the time period between like, I don't know, 2 and 6 a.m., it's not in the Bible, but that is hell. <laughs> you trying to corral junior high kids at that hour is just this crazy deal. Anyway, so my son's going to be this great kid. I don't that had nothing to do with the message. But I'm laying next to him. Everybody's quiet. Everything's totally still. I don't know where he heard this word. We don't use it in our house. I've never heard it before, even used in any other. <laughs> never have I heard this. But he's, he's laying there, and I feel his face, because I can't see him. I just feel his face look over at me. And he opens his eyes and goes, butt loaf. <laughs> what? Then, then my nine-year-old starts cracking up. He starts laughing. I start laughing. The entire room is now like, we're like, what does that mean? So that became now like the, we're, we can't say it, but we, you know, when someone's being really lame, hey, you know, you can just, my, my sons will say each other, to each other, don't be a butt loaf. I mean, it just became the new, the new phrase. Now, all this to say, there is something unique and special about the moment that we share as a parent, and I share as a parent, with my sons or with my daughter when I'm with them. Something is different than if I just send them to bed. Now, that's not like you shouldn't do that. I'm not, I'm not trying to create a new thing. Some of you are like, we got to say the word butt loaf to our children, and that's something we... Don't, don't, I'm just saying, for, for me and for our own family, there's something unique about being with them together. God's presence is dwelling with his people in the tent after they've been freed from captivity. And that same presence of God, the glorious presence of God, has set up a tent, has been enfleshed in Jesus, who is now among his people. The same God of the tent and the temple who released his people from captivity is among us. And it says about him that he is full of grace and truth. To get a handle on grace and truth means then that we get a clearer handle or a clearer picture of who God is. 
other words, if we don't understand this phenomenon, this full of grace and truth deal, then we miss out on a critical component of who God is. The fullness of grace and truth. I'm going to give you a working definition just for today. There are other ways to talk about grace and truth. I just want you to stick with this one for today. Grace is the means by which people are set free from captivity. Grace is the means by which people are set free from captivity. This is, the, is God's grace that rescued his own people who were in captivity in Egypt. It wasn't that he looked at his people and said, man, these people are just a little bit more righteous than everybody else. It wasn't that he said, by comparison to the Egyptians, these guys, they have got their act together. No, 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 no. God rescued his own people because they were his. Grace is the means by which we are set free or people are released from captivity. Truth, on the other hand, is the reality of things such as they are. Some people talk about the truth as a mirror, a way to see things as they are, and it also points us to the way that things ought to be. In, in uh, so many ways to think about it is this, that the truth was given uh, uh, in such, well, I'll just keep going. Give by example. This past week, uh, or two weeks ago, you guys remember a couple weeks ago we had a, um, we had a, we, this is the most fun I've ever had in church. We, we, we just said, we're going to take in a bunch of money and we're going to give it all away. We will see no direct benefit from this. It was called Be Fearless. Some of you guys were here for this. It's so fun. And we, you know, our, our, our church community raised a bunch of money. And so one of the things we said is we're going to find 50 organizations locally and globally. We're going to partner with them, the things that people that are already doing a great job. And we're going to go to them and we're going to say, we're, we're so behind you and we're just going to surprise them with either volunteers or material resources or whatever it is. So a couple weeks ago, I go to, um, this place called South County Outreach, and um, I walk in the door, and this, the woman who's running the whole thing there, the, the manager, she's, she's kind of giving us a tour. She has no idea that we're going to give her some money, and this is out of your own generosity. You guys raised this money, we gave it to her. And so we're, we're there, and she's kind of giving us the tour. And we give her, yeah, I think it was a $10,000 check. She was super excited. I mean, she was like, this enables us to do so much stuff. It was so great. And I said, as I'm, she's giving us the tour of their facility. She hit a couple of things to me that I thought, this is, this is such a good place to be giving this money. I just confirmed it. She's given this tour of what looks like a grocery store. She said, in a lot of places, these food pantries, when people will come in, what the volunteers will do is they will just make a box of 100 pounds of food or whatever it is, and they just give it to these families who come through. It's almost like they just open their trunk and put it in their trunk and drive on. She said, that's great, but here's the deal. We have families who come in with kids who have peanut allergies, and one of the things we always give people is a giant Costco vat of peanut butter, and it doesn't help a family who has that scenario. So this is why I thought she was awesome right here. She goes, what we want to do here is we want to give, this is the buzzword for me, dignity to those families. That they walk in here, and the kids get to shop and pick out the cereal, and the families get to fill up their, their boxes of stuff. And so I'm like, this is, this is what it's all about. And I'm asking her, I said, um, uh, I said, well, what kind of, what, give me, what are some of the stories? She goes, some of them are beautiful and wonderful, and some of them are incredibly tragic. She goes, and this is the, the truth of what's happening. She says, um, there's a, a family who came in last week, and uh, they had driven their whole, their, they'd driven all the way across the country with a U-Haul in the back of their car. They pull into Walmart, uh, and they all, everybody gets out. As soon as the family starts walking towards Walmart, the dad gets back in the car and drives off and leaves the family. She goes, that's the kind of people that show up here. And she's just, you know, she's like, it's pretty hard to take that story home. And she goes, this is part of us joining them 
and helping them to restore at least a little bit of their dignity. Truth, this is a situation that is unacceptable. The grace says we can begin to work on releasing you from the captivity of this situation. Truth and grace, the fullness of truth and grace, I saw it lived out. If you grew up in the church, you probably heard this phrase, truth and grace, a lot. And most of the time it's talked about like this. Over here is truth. It gets on a continuum. Over here is truth. And on the other side, way over here, is grace. And the role of the people who follow Jesus is to walk the razor's edge balance beam between both. That we're supposed to have a balance of truth and grace. Well, let me just tell you, Jesus is not called the balance of truth and grace. He is called the fullness of truth and grace. It isn't that we simply try to balance these things. It isn't simply that God's called us to do that or that he is the balance of these things. It is that he is the fullness of both of them. Just by way of example, I was, uh, last week I was driving, um, driving here and um, I'm on 405 right before the El Toro Y and there's a guy in a lowered, bright red, crew cab dually truck and he's just weaving through traffic trying to just you know get through a play he's just mo- maneuvering and and you know now let me just tell you the truth of that scenario is this is a person who is being reckless and I began to develop a story about how that person is mean to people and he probably kicks dogs and, and you know and he yells at his grandma and he you know he just shoves people out of the way in line and yells at cashiers and all these guys I just developed a story about this person who I've never met and don't know anything about now a truth and grace kind of together moment would be this. Let me just give you a sense of how, like, what this would look like. If this is why I really kind of held these things together is to say, that person isn't driving safely. He probably, that person though, he probably has explosive diarrhea. And he is trying, <laughs> he is trying to find a way to the bathroom. I mean, just that would be a sense of going, there's the both and. That you need both. I'm not making an allowance for the fact that, you know, that truly this is not safe. It's not like I just go, that's safe driving. But it's unsafe. But maybe there's a possibility that there's some other way in which that I, there's another side of the story that I don't know, Grace. Instead of holding him captive to some kind of condemnation. Does that make sense? No, it's a little graphic. Some of you are like, that's a terrible example. <laughs> it is. But the grace without truth, these things both have to be expressed in fullness. Grace without truth is little more than apathy. Grace without truth is a little more than apathy. I don't care what you do. It doesn't matter. We don't care here. It's all grace. That's not even love. And truth without grace is basically a little more than a sledgehammer. Jesus is in the fullness of truth and grace. Verse 16, check it out. Out of his fullness we've received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, grace in place of grace already given is this. Kind of a weird phrase. Remember, God's people are rescued out of captivity in Egypt, and they're taken on this wandering wilderness adventure off to the promised land. While they're wandering around, God delivering them, not because they were so wonderful, but because they were his, he gives to them, through Moses, the law. Now, the law isn't anti-grace. God redeems his people, and then he tells them, here's how to live as free people. They don't receive the law like it's a, they don't receive it with negativity. They don't receive it with, they receive it with this sense of, I mean, that's the intention anyways, to receive it as God's instruction on how to live as free people. 
We've only known 400 years of how to live as captive people. The law shows us how to live as God's freed people. Uh, I want to just show you, this is a quote from uh, a, a you know, scholar. I, I you know, follow, I read, I read you know, one of his resources I use for this message. Why don't you check this out? This is a guy I discovered in college. It says this, God's greatest gift to his people was the revealed Torah, God's law. The law was both, both a grace and a duty. It was to be kept, of course, but it was above all a gift, a privilege, and not a burden. The law was offered to all nations, but only Israel accepted. You see, for so many of us, this impression about the truth is that it's this kind of enemy of grace. And the idea is that they both have to go together. Jesus is the fullness of truth and of grace. Verse 17, again, it says, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, all of who God is is embodied in Jesus, and what that is is grace and truth. And the people who had studied and knew about God, uh, you could say it this way, that the, the surprising thing when you look at Jesus' ministry is that the people who missed the truth about who God is in Jesus weren't the people who were the sort of notorious sinners living in darkness who had kind of these sordid pasts. Those people tend to figure out who Jesus was. The people who missed it were the ones who were really well-learned people. These are the people who had studied the scripture, the people who were kind of the ones who were known for their righteousness. The, Jesus has a frequent run-in with these people, a group of these people, called the Pharisees. The Hebrew word, version of the word Pharisees is the word perishim, which means the separated ones, the ones who are outside of everybody else, who are looking for a way to be a little bit distant from the common people so that they wouldn't be infected by their disease of sin. And Jesus frequently has a conversation with these guys who have missed the point of truth and of grace. In Matthew 23, Jesus has um, a conversation with some Pharisees. And this isn't, again, this isn't with all Pharisees, just with these ones. But he has a conversation with them in which he has what is frequently known as the seven woes. I'm going to show you three of them. We don't have time to do all seven of them. But woe, by the way, is, is not woe like, woe. Like it's woe meaning sorrow, sadness, or grief. But just for the sake of it, because it's fun, we need to all say the word woe. Okay? All right? Just, we're, we've been a long time of talking for a little bit. Let's just go ahead and on the count of three, I want us all to say woe. Okay? One, two, three. With a little bit more like energy, like, whoa. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Exactly. So this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. That was really well done. Uh, He says to them, whoa, which means sorrow and sadness and grief upon you. Of course, we don't really use that anymore, but woe to you, children who run in the street or whatever. We don't use that phrase anymore. But here's what he says. Whoa. Check this out. Verse uh, Verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. We talked about this two weeks ago, which hypocrites is just another way of saying, you masked play actors. You're wearing a mask. You're part of the, the, you know, the stage. You wear, it, you wear a mask, and you have, you're an actor. So anyway, you, you hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. In other words... By the way, in the second verse of chapter 23, it says, you sit in in Moses' seat. In other words, you people have the authority to teach people about God. And you are using the law, you are using the truth of who God is to keep people from finding their way to God. You've been entrusted, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you've been entrusted with the most holy stuff about God. His word, his law, his truth, and you're using it as a way to keep people out because they can't get there on their own. 
Pharisees were known for taking, here's, let's say this is the law. They're known for making and building what they called hedges around the law. Other laws to prevent the breaking of this law and so on and so forth. And those, those hedges became more important than the interior law itself. And so pretty soon they began to get a, dis, sort of, a disproportionate view about what really mattered in order to keep people from God. And Moses is calling them out on it. Or Jesus is calling them out on it. Hey, you guys, Moses made these laws, but they're not to keep people from God. They're about painting a picture toward him. Christians, notoriously, have taken that same position. There's a way in which we operate, people, outside of, the, outside, outside of our little bubble here. But I just want to let you know, uh, you probably aren't good enough to be part of us, so you should feel shame and guilt and then have a little distance from us. We wouldn't want you polluting our inner group. Christians have a sense of obscuring or getting in the way of God's story for the purposes of keeping the unsavory types away. We actually use God's word, the truth of God's word, to keep people at a distance, to exclude people. That's one of our sort of reputations as Christians. The Pharisees, and sometimes the church, don't have a good understanding of truth and of grace. In fact, in this case, you could say that the Pharisees have missed even the picture of truth itself. Next, skipping down to verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. This is the word tithe. Mint, dill, and cumin. Let me stop right there. What, what he's saying here is, Pharisees, in your super hyper-righteousness, you have counted the leaves in your herb garden. And you've actually literally counted them, multiplied that by one-tenth, and given that as a tithe to God. Way to go what he's saying well done that's awesome but keep on reading but you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice mercy and faithfulness you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former in other words I don't care I mean it's like that's great I love that you're that meticulous about your tithing that's great that you would count the leaves in your garden that's that's brilliant But why would you not give the same kind of emphasis to the bigger picture of stuff with justice and mercy? Why would you not practice the same kind of discipline with faithfulness? You blind guides, verse 24. I love this. This is the greatest word picture in the Bible. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. I just love that. Just the like, I'm trying, I just want to get this gnat out of my, oh my, where are the camel? I mean, just the picture is awesome to me. It's a perfect illustration of you are missing the point. You are majoring in the minors here, you guys. Don't miss the bigger picture of what God wants to do. God is about something much bigger than just sort of your little hyper-righteousness. He's about something way bigger. Just, this is one version of where, where Jesus is kind of alluding to. And Hosea 6.6 6 says this. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, it doesn't matter... If what you're doing is sort of focusing on these tiny little things and missing out on the bigger picture of God's story in the world. God's story isn't going to be written in the, did I tell you that I tithed all of the mint leaves in my garden? God's story is about justice and love and mercy. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be righteous there, but let's apply the same level of intensity towards these things. Verse 25. Whoa! To you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You 
<clears throat> clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. He says of the people who are notoriously, I mean, sorry, he said people who are known for their righteousness, he says you have a notorious history now. The outside, everything in the exterior of your life is known by other people to be righteous, but you're dying on the inside. you got something happening on the inside that nobody knows, and you're covering it up with things like tithing the mint, the dill, and the cumin. You're covering it up with the robes and the appearance of all this righteousness, and yet there is something inside of you that is destroying you, that is actually holding you captive, but you're not dealing with it. In fact, the way that you're dealing with it is that what you're saying is, yeah, there's some stuff happening here, but the way I'm going to deal with it is to add some more exterior righteousness so that people won't know about it. Just more obscuring of grace and truth. In the church, Christians have a history, either for the reasons of social pressure or the fear of exclusion or whatever else it might be, of not actually dealing honestly with what's on the interior of the cup. A lot of us will add a ton of Christian-y kind of activities to, to mask what's actually going on in our own lives. It's especially tempting if you believe that people will condemn you if you come forward and say, I got some stuff in my life, I'm afraid to say it, but if I say it, I'm pretty sure I'll be abandoned from the grave. I'll be voted off the island, I'm not saying it. So we just bury it, we hide it, clean the outside of the cup once again. And then there's just more captivity. I've seen this happen a lot in churches where there's a culture of fear. People who have a fear about there being a constant being evaluation of their exterior sort of stuff going on tends to create a culture of fear and a culture of deep-rooted resentment and secrecy. One of the things you discover, those of you who have been through a rooted experience, is that you experience this truth as rooted as this 10-week experience in which you kind of understand who God is, your own purpose, the church, all that kind of stuff. But a lot of you have been through rooted, and you discover that those things that are buried deep within you are the things that are holding you from the life of grace and truth, the freedom of what you really wanted. And so in, a, in an environment of safety, you say, this is what's on the inside of the cup. And it's eating me alive. And I wanted you to know about it. In, 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 a, in a rooted group, what people will say as they get around each other is they'll say, they won't say, you know what, that's not a big deal, that doesn't matter. What they'll say is, I get how hard that is. Thank you for being honest with us. This, uh, uh, that isn't an okay thing but we love you and you're with us and we will help you through this and we will pray that God intervenes in powerful ways. Grace and truth. You know, see, Jesus isn't just merely a new moral teacher for people. He isn't one who just gives us a new philosophy on how to be sort of nice to each other. He isn't sort of like the grand boy scout kind of telling us how to do stuff. No. Jesus is the one who dwells in the fullness of grace and truth among us who wants to grant to us freedom from our captivity. The disciples, not just merely Christians, but disciples aren't bound by the appearance of righteousness, the exterior stuff. What they're saying is that we really want our hearts transformed in truth and grace. Let me just ask you for a second. We've been in this series now. This is the seventh week of this series. We've been in this series for a while. Some of you have been wrestling with what does it mean. Some of you have been brought by your own friends. 
and you're wrestling with what does it mean to actually follow Jesus, that we've talked about him long enough, we've considered all of who he is in a lot of ways, there's still lots of things we haven't covered that we just probably will never have time for in our lives, but we've looked at Jesus for a while here, we said that Christians have a history of obscuring the truth about Jesus in some ways, and it's our intention to at least reclaim something about the way that Jesus would have intended his followers to sort of look like. Some of you in this room are going, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about Jesus' followers, but I'm, I, I kind of like Jesus. I've never really considered what it might be like to walk with him. I talked to some of you guys who are enrooted, who are going, man, you know, I never really, I, this is the first time I've ever really had a conversation about God, and it's becoming a little bit more clear that he really does want to release me from captivity. Others of you in the room, you have had a, a long relationship with the church. You've been connected to a bunch of Christians, and they're all well-meaning and great intentions, but you're going, I don't know if I've ever really, in all honesty, chosen to follow Jesus. Would you close your eyes for just a moment and give you something to think about? As you sit here, thinking about what we've talked about over the course of the past seven weeks, we have one more week in the series, but over the past seven weeks, Maybe there's a new picture of who Jesus is that's being revealed to you. That so much of what the church has kind of placed in front of you has maybe been um, an obstacle. For those of you who are sort of investigating church and checking out Jesus, trying to figure out what your response ought to be, maybe today you say, all right, I don't have all the answers, but I want to follow Jesus. I want to take him seriously. I'm not committing to following the followers of Jesus. I'm following Jesus. For others of you in the room, maybe you have this sense, like we talked about, that there's like, okay, this is a day where I can mark this moment as breaking from merely the traditions of following sort of church world or Christians, but maybe it's what we say, you know what? I want to do the same thing. I want to commit to following Jesus, not just merely sort of being a participant in church activity. Father, we are your people who would choose you because you are full of grace and truth. That you would look at our lives and say, there are some things that are holding us captive that we need to be released from that we do not have the power to be released from and we need you to release us that we might know the fullness of what it means to walk with you, to have you dwell among us. Jesus, some of us, we choose you for the first time. Would you open your eyes? Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. This is an incredibly courageous thing. If for the first time, and, you know, well, we're not, going to, we're not going to wait until 3 p.m. until someone you know, does whatever, but here's what I want you to do. If it's for the first time you go, you know what, I've never really actually done this before. I've been around church, people have invited me, and this series is beginning to make sense, and I think I really want to connect with Jesus for the first time. Would you do this? Super courageous. Would you just stand up right where you are? Everybody say, okay, I'm ready for this. I don't know what's coming, but I'm ready. 
saw Jesus ask people to follow him, jump out of their boats and follow him, and they did, not knowing where he would take them. But they knew it was about Jesus. Anybody else? Hey, will some folks just around, maybe three or four of you guys, just stand with them that are next to them back there in the, over there. Just stand with them. Let them put a hand on their shoulder. We're a family. We do stuff together. Moments of great triumph, great struggle. We stand together. Anybody else want to choose Jesus for the first time? Someone else right here. Would someone stand with her, please? Some folks, would you just right, right there, would you just stand and let her know that she's not alone? Okay, anybody else? The inside of the cup, maybe not looking all that clean, and you need God to work in it. Right here, would someone stand with her, please? Anybody else? Anybody who wants to say, now this is, just keep standing for a second. Anybody who says, you know, I've been, I've been following Christians for a long time. And I don't want, this again, I don't want everybody in the room to stand up. This is, some of you are already doing this. This is who you are. A lot of our community already acts and believes and follows Jesus in a way that is with full sincerity. But if you for the first time say, man, I, I followed the church and I followed Christians for a long time, but I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. I really want to take it seriously to follow Jesus. This isn't, not everybody, don't everybody stand up. This isn't like I'm taking role, who's didn't, who didn't stand. But for you, you go, I'm done with, the games of church, I want to follow Jesus. Stand up. Someone right here, will someone stand with her, please? All right, can someone stand right here with her? Just put your arms around her, let her know that you're there. Put a hand on the shoulder. Anybody else? It's a big commitment. Anybody else want to stand? All right, last shot. Let's pray together. Father, it is such a great and wonderful and glorious picture of your love. When people choose you, not because of coercion or fear, but because of the fullness of your truth and grace. Jesus, it's a beautiful picture of family. We would stand with those folks and say, this is the story that God is writing among us and will continue to write among us. Where people are drawn to you to follow you. Jesus, would this be a community, a family, a, a place in which we can grow and walk with those among us who are choosing courageously to choose you? Father, we, we pray that this would be a moment of victory, a moment to celebrate, that it would mark um, all of our lives as you, the one who is in the fullness of truth and grace, would be made known to us more deeply. And it's in your name, Father, we pray. Amen.